Unrooted is a podcast by the Indigenous Foundation focused on centering Indigenous voices and stories. Through Unrooted, we hope to dismantle systems of oppression and uproot the deeply ingrained issues and racism that exist against Indigenous peoples to this day. We hope to share intersectional holistic perspectives through our discussions with Indigenous and Afro-Indigenous advocates and changemakers. Hi, my name is Isabella Thurston, and I'm currently a part of the podcast and columnist team at the Indigenous Foundation, or TIFF, that strives to raise awareness about Indigenous rights on a global scale. And my name is Ro Abdallah, and I'm also part of the podcast team, as well as the projects team. We are so excited to be introducing our podcast series under the Indigenous Foundation's podcast, Unrooted. In this series, we'll be delving into the number one national bestseller, 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act, written by Bob Joseph. In each episode, we're going to be exploring one to two of the topics that are examined in the book and how they're still impacting Indigenous people and communities today. Yeah, so keep in mind that whatever we explore throughout this podcast has a connection between the past and the present. Yes, exactly. So much of what happened in the past didn't stay in the past, but has trickled down into the present and can still have an impact on the future if we don't start creating change. For sure. And for that reason, we'd like you to keep in mind that many of the subject matter we explore can be triggering or sensitive to some. So please proceed and listen with caution. So we'd also like to disclose that throughout this podcast series, we will be using the term Indian in the context of the original act and its contents. However, we really want to just make it clear that this is not a term that should be used to refer to Indigenous peoples or communities because it is an offensive colonial term. So with that, let's just get right into it. Our first topic that we're going to be discussing today is the imposed elected chief and band council system, which began in 1869 and is still present today. So before the arrival of European settlers, Indigenous people were successfully governing and running their communities in an extremely sustainable way that worked for everyone. Yeah, they were managing their own resources and working in a way that aligned with their values and needs. There was this assumption that the land that existed had not been inhabited and that the history began when Europeans came as if no society existed before that with their own policies and governing bodies. So this is so far from the truth. When the Europeans did arrive on the land, they saw the system in place that they viewed as irresponsible and savage, mainly because they believed that their way of life was the only way, which is why they took it upon themselves to replace their way of governing. The type of government imposed was a municipal style government consisting of elected officials and chiefs, and the elected members were determined by the terms and conditions of the government. And when this new type of government was imposed on the communities, Indigenous needs and values were just thrown away. So although they made it seem as if Indigenous peoples would have a say in their elected officials, in reality, the chief was elected by the Department of Indian Affairs. And only males over the age of 23 could vote in banned elections. And women did not even gain the right to vote until 1951. Also, the department had the ability to dispose of a chief if they chose to do so. For those who aren't aware, in order to vote in a banned election, one must have banned membership. So before 1985, anyone with Indian status was automatically a member of the band, meaning they had the right to vote. 
The elections were originally held every year, and then they were moved to every three years in 1898, and then to every two years. So this doesn't really give them much time to make any real changes, which further stripped them of their powers. So essentially, it just gave them the illusion of power. Yeah, exactly. Because indigenous peoples were viewed as incapable of running their communities, they were no longer in charge of their land, resources, or finances. So even though there were elected officials in the communities, all they had control over was their public health sector, the maintenance of the roads, bridges, etc., and the public buildings on their land. Basically, indigenous peoples and communities were left with very little power. No control over the things that they had successfully managed for years before, and were forced into assimilation. Yeah, that's pretty much the gist of it. There is an alternative way elections are held and conducted based on the Indian Act. Yes, it's known as the First Nations Election Act, which allows the chiefs and councillors to be in office for four years instead of two, allowing them more time to make a difference in their community, which is great. But overall, the whole process is still under the control of Canada. So not much is improved except for time held in office. Exactly. It is so ridiculous. The First Nations Election Act is not the only alternative being offered to Indigenous communities. There is also an option for custom election codes. These codes are created by the First Nations and pretty much give them the power to govern themselves, which they were doing long before the European settlers showed up and imposed their ways of government on them. The First Nation will decide how the election takes place and what the rules will be. However, it is a long and intensive process. And the minister must sign off on the transition from the Indian Act to the Custom Election Code, so it has to be submitted in a draft version. Wow. Okay, so we acknowledge that this is so much information. So if you're having trouble absorbing it all, feel free to rewind. Take it slow and just understand it at your own pace. Now. It is promising that there are alternatives to the Indian Act, but ultimately, Indigenous communities should be able to govern themselves as they were before, and as they know that what is best for their people and their land. I couldn't agree more. And to top it all off with a smidge of sexism, although women were given the right to vote in 1951, if they married a non-status man, their Indian status was revoked, meaning they no longer had a say in their government. And that leads us into our next topic within the Indian Act, which is the denial of status for women. So in order to understand the impact of the Indian Act on Indigenous women, it's first really crucial to understand the role of women in Indigenous societies. Firstly, within many Indigenous societies, there is a great kinship with the natural world, and women are viewed to be connected to the earth. So if women are central to the creation of the land and maintaining the relationship between the land and the people, while the colonial imperative is to possess the land, then they will be seeking to fundamentally remove or sever that relationship to fulfill the colonial mission. For sure. And the other thing that's really important to consider is the colliding worldviews when it comes to women from Europe versus Indigenous women. In the Victorian era, European men were considered as part of the public domain. So they were the ones that held the power in a patriarchal society who took on the roles in government and affected change as they wished. While European women were considered to be part of the private domain. They would be the ones staying home, 
taking the role of housewife and having no real voice in European society. Many of these stereotypes are still held today in modern society, contributing to yet another major issue, sexism. Oh, so many issues to deal with. But for now, let's just jump to the other side across the ocean in indigenous societies in North America. So prior to European contact, the roles were flipped upside down and women were held at a very high status. They were central to the family and the traditional lifestyle of indigenous societies, which were considered to be matriarchal in nature. As opposed to women in Europe, indigenous women had roles with governments and spiritual ceremonies. They would also be able to veto any decision made by a chief and as well could install or remove chiefs and even held a role in distributing property and food. So basically, in every aspect of indigenous society, women had powerful roles in terms of political life, economy and home life. And upon European contact, this colliding worldview did not bode well. And so the colonizers set out to disrespect, undermine, and tear down the role of women in Indigenous societies. And this is where the Indian Act comes in. Yes. So first off, the Indian Act policies sought to make women unequal to men in whatever way possible. In the late 1800s, federal law defined a status Indian only based on paternal lineage. So if an Indian or Indigenous woman were to marry a non-Indian man, both her and her children of this marriage would be denied status. And if a woman's mother or paternal grandmother were not status Indian before their marriages, the woman's status was also removed. However, if a non-Indian woman married an Indian man, she would get status that way, and the Indian men wouldn't even be denied status if they were married to non-Indian women. So this was under Section 12 of the 1951 Indian Act, and between 1958 and 1968 alone, there were more than 100,000 women and children who had their Indian status taken away from them because of these policies. Okay, so that was... A lot. Let's pause here to consider the consequences of this policy in the Indian Act. If women were to marry a non-Indigenous men, they wouldn't even be able to live on reserves. So they're ousted from reserves and instead replaced with non-Indigenous women who receive status from Indigenous men. What a double standard. Yeah, absolutely. And then reserves start lacking their much-needed matriarchal role models that have that connection to the land. And no doubt this policy was extremely intentional and definitely well thought out. In residential schools, girls were taught that they should marry non-Indigenous men, so they had that idea ingrained in them from a young age. And the other thing is that when women were ousted from their reserves, they were left to fend for themselves in urban towns and cities. Now, imagine being kicked out of your home, the place and community you have known for your whole life, and suddenly you're surrounded by an unknown and unfamiliar environment where you'll be looked down upon and discriminated against. So this was really a way to slowly assimilate women and tear down that traditional lifestyle of Indigenous people and seep into it the European lifestyle. Another reason not having status was detrimental to Indigenous women and societies, as we talked about a little earlier, was that women weren't allowed to vote in banned council elections. Which, of course, is a huge deviation from the previous powerful roles that women had in band councils. Yeah, for sure. And that's not even all. The Indian Act denied women any right to own land or property. 
1884, there was an amendment made to the Indian Act, which stated that an Indigenous man could write a will to provide his possessions to his widow. But there was a catch. She had to have been living with him, and in judgment of the federal authorities, had to be of good moral character. And if she didn't fulfill these requirements, the possessions would be given to his children. Moving forward a little in time, in 1985, Bill C-31 was passed, which amended the Indian Act and attempted to remove discrimination against women. So this sought to be consistent with Section 15 of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedom. Yet still, discrimination remained. An example of this is the second-generation cutoff. So basically, Indigenous women who had previously lost their status by marrying non-Indigenous men before 1985 could pass down their Indian status to their children, but not their grandchildren. On the other hand, their brothers, who also married non-Indigenous, could pass on their status to their grandchildren. Again, with that unbelievable double standard. On paper, this amendment seemed amazing. It provided a way for women to apply to get back their status, but in reality, it was actually a very difficult process that had many hurdles. Indigenous women had to try to tackle the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs complex documents. There were already so many requests in unbelievable volume, and there was a major understaffing problem that made the process unbearably long. But that wasn't the only problem. Many Indigenous women had to also travel long distances to get to the offices of the Department of Indian and Northern Affairs as they lived in remote communities. There were crazy amounts of documentation fees and travel requirements that just made this process of regaining status impossible. In the end, this amendment did little to change the discrimination against women within the Indian Act. Then came Bill C-3, which was introduced in March of 2010. It was supposed to change the discrimination, but like Bill C-31, it did little to nothing. The grandchildren who were born before September 4th of 1951, who could trace their Indigenous heritage through their paternal parentage, were able to get their status, while those who traced it through their maternal parentage were denied. So we see here that over the years, Indigenous women were continued to be denied status and rights. And the consequences of the Indian Act did not stop when amendments were made. It has lasting impacts that are intergenerational. More and more women were thrown out of their homes, and the culture, traditions, and lifestyle of Indigenous people were completely shaken. So now the question that one might ask is, why is it so important for us to learn about the Indian Act? As we've said before, history has a huge impact on the present. And in order to create change, it's important for us to dig deeper past the surface level history knowledge that we learn in school, the kind of knowledge that most of us were shielded from. And we just scratched the surface of these topics. We really encourage you guys to do your own research. Learn about the lasting impacts of the Indian Act. Think critically about what you were taught within the colonial education system all in order to be a strong voice on the road to decolonization. I couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you all so much for sticking with us. So far, we've only touched on two of the items within the Indian Act. We'll be coming back each month to delve into new topics, so stay tuned. Until next time, thank you guys.